Okay, well, we are. It's on. Okay, perfect. We're doing a four week series on Jesus and women. And so, what we're going to start by today is we're going to burn our bras. So, if anyone wants to start with that, that would be great. Mine, you wouldn't even be able to tell a difference if Mike said they were a little lower, but you wouldn't be able to tell, sadly enough. But really, I do want to reiterate this is. It's Jesus and women, but more about that, it's Jesus. It's just who Jesus is and the way he elevated and gave dignity and respect to women in a time when culture did just the opposite. So at the end of the four weeks, the goal is not that we burn our bras and say, woo, you know, we demand, you know, whatever. No. The end of the four-week goal, the goal at the end of the four weeks is that we love a God that we see in a fuller picture. In a greater light. And we understand that when Jesus came, he turned culture on its head, society on its head, norms on its head. And today we live out cultural norms in Christianity. Some of them are not even found scripturally. But it's just what we've always believed and what we've always done and what we've always known. And that was the same back in biblical times. And women were not, um, they were not respected they were not revered. They were not listened to. And Jesus came in and did, did what no one else had ever done. And so what I'm going to do is take four weeks and look at the way he interacted with women. And as you see that, you'll understand at a deeper level, I hope, of just how loving and compassionate and powerful and uplifting the God that you serve actually is. So as we jump in... I want to just give you a little bit of background of the culture of the day in biblical times and the way women were viewed in the culture. I'm going to read a couple things. Um, so just, just listen. The Greeks, this is how the Greeks viewed women back there. It says, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless she was accompanied by a trustworthy male escort. And listen to this. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's home. Did you all hear that? So you've done all the cooking, you've been the, the hospitable one, and then the guests get there, and you're not allowed to interact with them. Instead, she had to retire to her woman's quarters. Now, I ha as I read that, I thought, I would love to have woman's quarters. I would love, <laughs> wouldn't you? I would love for someone to say, just go on back there. No one's going to be with you. You're going to be all by yourself. That, that's like vacation to me. <laughs> anyway. Men kept their wives under lock and key, and women had the social status of a slave. Women had the social status of a slave. Girls were not allowed to go to school, and when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. Women were considered inferior to men, and the Greek poets equated women with evil. Hence, Pandora and her box. Now, this is how the Romans viewed women back in this day. Same thing. Women, their view of women was very low. Roman law placed a wife under the absolute control of her husband who had ownership of her and all her possessions. Had ownership. All right, whatever. We'll just stop right there. He could divorce her if she went out in public without a veil on. Remember, some of you have heard me teach on the, the woman at the well who'd been divorced five times. Back in the day, if a man wanted to divorce you, all he had to do was take you to the public square and say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it was done. There was no lawyer involved. It was done. And women were considered property of their fathers until they got married, and then they were considered the property of their husbands. Bless your heart back there in the back, you man. I know that this is appalling to you. But... 
Listen, we are not going to attack you. We are not. We know that you are a gracious man. He is like, note to self, don't ever go down to the poolside room on Wednesdays. It says, a husband had the power of life and death over his wife just as he did his children. And as with the Greeks, women were not allowed to speak in public. Jewish women, now Jewish women, let's talk about how the Jews viewed women. They're the religious men and women of the day. Here's how they, you would think they would be a little bit better, but not at all. It says, women were barred from speaking in public. Barred from speaking in public. And the oral law prohibited women from reading the Torah, which was their Bible, essentially out loud. Synagogue worship was segregated with women never allowed to be heard. Now, when I went and toured the Holy Lands a few years back, we were at the Wailing Wall. Now, this is in 2013 that I was there at the Wailing Wall at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Still segregated to this day. Men are on one side. There's a barrier. Women are on the other side. And they're praying separately. And so, so at certain levels, this still exists in our culture today. But I think it's so interesting that this is the norm, and not just the norm by those that are outside of religious activity, but especially the norm with those that are inside religious activity. So Jewish men and women, you could, if you were a rabbi, which meant teacher, you could not get within six feet of women that were not your spouse, and you certainly wouldn't talk to them. So Jesus, who's referred to as teacher and rabbi throughout the New Testament, we're going to look at what he does and how he inter interacts with women. And, and the one thing I've said over and over that I will always say that Dwight has said is that the one thing you will see most apparent about Christ as you study him is that he's always surprising. Every time I think, well, that's probably how he's going to react. He's probably going to respond this way. That's what he would say. It's always different. And so as I read that in Scripture, and as you and I study this together for the next four weeks, we have to put ourselves in this story. So as Jesus speaks to these women, I have to realize that's how he speaks to me. Because some of us came, came in today, and we are still under the, um, the lie that God somehow doesn't view us as worthy enough of his blessings. And maybe it's not because you're female, but just because you don't think that you're worthy. Some of us, if we were really honest, and Jesus in the flesh walked in the room, we're a little nervous about what he might think that, that we're here. How might he view me? What might he think about me? Most of us, if we're really honest, wake up, and when we start to pray, we start with, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we don't really ever get past that in our relationship with the Lord, and that's not a relationship that's found in freedom. It's one that's found in guilt. And that's not the God of Scripture. He says, I came that you might um, have freedom and have life and have it abundantly. It is for freedom that I've set you free, free, Christ says. Don't be bound by a yoke of slavery again. Sometimes our slavery is just our own mind and the way we view ourselves and therefore project that onto God and think, well, that's obviously how he must see me too. Okay, so I'm going to jump in and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I haven't taught here before, but I've taught it before and I've loved it. And I came back to it because I felt like God really wanted me to start with this in this series. And it's Luke chapter 10, and it's a story of Mary and Martha. And the reason that I'm going to talk about this today is because we're going to track Mary for at least two weeks, probably three weeks in this study, because she, to me, is a beautiful picture of a relationship with Christ that I want to have. And so we're going to jump in and we're going to look at these sisters named Mary and Martha. Now, 
before I do, some of us in the room have grown up in church and we've heard this story. You can't, you cannot go to a women's event for very long and not hear about Mary and Martha. About 5,000 ministries are named Mary and Martha Ministries, right? And, and in doing so, there's always a certain perception of Martha and there's always a certain perception of Mary. What's Martha? What's, the, what's her reputation? What's the perception about her? Busy, busy body. Yeah, busy body. And we're going to look at that today. She is distracted, but I think she gets a bad rap a lot of times. And so we're going to look at her with, with more respect today than I think she's been given in the past. Because Jesus, several times in Scripture, says Jesus loved Martha. Now, Jesus loved Martha. And so I want you to keep that in mind because many of us, myself included, I relate to Martha. Okay? Okay. All right, let's jump in. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, they're talking about Jesus and his disciples. As they went on their way, they're, they're walking, they're headed toward Jerusalem. They entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So I want to stop there for just a second. Martha's the older sister. She welcomes Jesus into her house. We believe Martha's the one that owned the home. Martha had a brother named Lazarus and a sister named Mary. The three of them were good, close friends of Jesus. And so Jesus is walking. He's trucking. He's making the trek to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And he stops in Bethany. He's just left Samaria where he met the woman at the well. The Samaritans hated him. He wasn't, I mean, he, the whole village turned around, but then he needed to leave because he was also being persecuted. So he's trekking on to Jerusalem. He stops in Bethany, and Martha welcomes him into her house. So she's not cranky yet, okay? Aren't we like that? It's like the idea of having people over is always a great idea to me, right? And then there comes a time when you need to leave. It's time for the party to be over. Okay, so Martha welcomes, them, welcomes him in. Verse 39, it says, And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And listened to his teaching. So Martha welcomes him, and Mary immediately sits down at his feet. Now, we'll talk about that in just a second. But that's where we see her posture, and that's where she's going to stay. She stays at the Lord's feet, and she listens to his teaching. Now, you can pass over this and just assume, well, she, that's where she is. She's sitting there. But what we have to understand, culturally, in this day, this is so monumental, it's unbelievable. Because only people that were allowed to sit at the teacher's feet were men. So up until this point, what we believe is that the only people at Jesus' feet were the disciples or other men. And so to sit at a teacher's feet and for the teacher to allow you to sit at his feet meant he's saying, you're a disciple of mine. Where is Mary? Where is she sitting? She's sitting at his feet. You have no idea how this is going to make people's heads pop off. And so I don't want it to be lost on us the way Jesus interacts with society and the way he turns things on its head. And so for the cultural norm, forever, women were not even allowed in the room. She needed to go back and get in the kitchen or go to the woman's quarters. And she's sitting at his feet, and Jesus is welcoming her there. I love, A, the grace and compassion and dignity of Christ, but I love the boldness of Mary. Don't you? She gets it. She's like, listen, y'all just deal with it. You just say what you want. Do what you want. I know where I need to be, and it's at his feet. It's at his feet. So she's sitting there. 
I read a quote by Sue Bolin that says this. I loved it. It says, Among Jesus' closest friends were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who had entertained him at their home. Martha assumed the traditional female role of preparing a meal for Jesus, her guest, while her sister Mary did what only men would do, namely learn from Jesus' teachings. Mary was the cultural deviant... But so was Jesus, because he violated the rabbinic law of his day, which meant you couldn't speak to women. And by teaching, marital, uh, spirit, teaching, by teaching Mary spiritual truths, he also violated another rabbinic law, which said, let the words of the law, meaning the Torah, uh, the Bible, the Old Testament in that time, let them be burned rather than be taught to women. Is that nuts? Is that nuts? I just want to step back in that day and go, what is wrong with you people? I mean, it's amazing just how far we've come. But Jesus started the liberation movement, if you will. Jesus started. Now, now let me just say very clearly, I am not this big bra burning thing. But what I will say is um, what I love about Jesus is the dignity with which he treats us. He loves us equally. Now, God has equipped me with different gifts and different roles in my marriage than my husband. And I'm not saying that we're, we're equal in the sense that we um, have the same gifts and all that. We have a complementarian relationship. But what I am trying to tell you today is that Jesus, by um, moving women to a place of dignity, He's moving humanity to a place of dignity. He's saying, listen, I have come that you might have life. And what you think is normal is not normal, right? And so you can you can plug that in for if if there if racism had been rampant, which it was, there would have been an African American, there would have been an Asian, there would have been a Hispanic, Latino, there would have been a white, all, it, whatever. He's colorblind, and that applies to women as well. And that's what I love about the Lord. As you follow Him and as you fall in love with Jesus, you're going to be aghast and amazed and in awe of who He is. Of who he is, and oftentimes we stop short and we just walk in this Western Christian culture and we learn things that might not necessarily be reflective of Scripture, but they're just the cultural norm and they've bled into our churches. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So she's a cultural deviant. I don't know what would make me a cultural deviant, but I like that term. Okay, and then in verse 40 it says, But Martha, now watch, so she's, Mary's sitting at his feet. Martha's making a meal, and it says, Martha was distracted with much serving. Circle, under, and underline, and star that. Martha is distracted with much serving. What's distracting Martha? How dare her serve, Right? So, so I want to. I don't want to be. I don't want this to be lost on us. What is distracting Martha? It's service. It's service. It's something that's really good in and of itself, right? What is distracting you? What is distracting you? I have been sitting in this passage again, and this morning, all week long, I've been thinking, what is distracting me, Lord? Oh my goodness, I can't even begin to tell you. First thing, well, for me, my goal in the morning is when my kids get off to school, is for me to sit in this orange chair that I have and sit at Jesus' feet and actually engage with Him. Not check off the list that I've done a devotional, but to literally engage with Him. And let me tell you what distracts me. As soon as my kids get out the door, I want to go work out so I can get that done. 
So I'd rather go do that first and check it off the list. And then when I'm done working out, well, HEB is right across the street. So why don't I just go do that and get that checked off the list? And then when I come home, I'll sit at your feet. Well, what happens is when I come home, I realize none of the beds are made. And for me, that makes me insane. So then I start doing that. And then by the time I look up, it's 1 o'clock probably. And then it just doesn't happen. So is it, is it wrong to work out? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to grocery shop for my family? Absolutely not. Is it, and sometimes what wakes me up and distracts me are things that I'm worried about, things that, that, that trouble me. So sometimes my schedule gets off rhythm and I'm doing things that I need to attend to, and it's all a distraction. And none of it's bad. That's what I want to really um, clarify because a lot of times I think Martha is painted in a light of, well, she's just stupid. How could she not have chosen the right thing? Let me tell you, who's going to cook the meal if Martha's not going to cook it? Do you know what I mean? It's like Martha's not doing that because she's, because she's a deviant. She's not in the kitchen serving Jesus because she thinks, well, I'll just show him. I'm not going to sit at his feet. She's not prideful. She's doing what's normal. She's doing what she knows needs to get done. And that's what's interesting. But what, so I want you to think for just a second, what is distracting you at this season of your life? Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your career. Um, maybe it's your service. Maybe it's your ministry that you're involved in. Oftentimes I can get distracted by ministry and it's easier to prepare a message than just to engage with Christ. And I don't ever want ministry to supersede my love for Him because you don't want me teaching. You don't. And you've sat under pastors before, and you can tell they're just cranky. They're cranky. They need a break. They're, and because they're all about the work, because they've become distracted. It happens. I read this about um, Martha that I thought was so good, and it just paints her in such a good light. It says, torn between the conversation and her preparations, Martha's attention is drawn to the kitchen, and here she readies her feast. Nothing like a hot meal for a weary traveler and nothing but the best for Jesus. In her zeal to give the very best to Jesus, she empties her cupboards, brings out the foods reserved for special occasions, and gets the flour to make fresh bread. Something, in, something is in the making that's eternal, but it's not in the kitchen. What's cooking in the kitchen will be gone in a meal. It's what's being prepared in the other room that will go on forever. And what I loved about what Ken Geyer says is he says Martha is torn between the conversation that's happening in the living room and what's happening, the needs in the kitchen. That spoke to me so much because that's where I sit a lot of the times. I'm torn between understanding I need to engage with the Lord. I need my relationship with Him has got to go beyond my study of Him. But I'm torn because I've got all these things I've got to attend to and take care of. But those things will be gone at the end of the meal. And what happens here will last for eternity. You see, what happens here at the feet of Jesus will impact and change the way I view everything else I've got to attend to. And so Martha, in her distraction, is led away to the kitchen and watch what happens uh, by her distractions. So she's in the kitchen. She sees Mary sitting at his feet, and she's getting annoyed, and she says this. She goes up to the, to the Lord, and she says, Lord, watch this. Do you not care, circle underline, that my sister has left me to serve alone? 
tell her to help me. Whoa. Now remember just a couple verses prior, Martha welcomed him into her home, right? She welcomed him into her home. What is it that you love to do? What is it that you love to do? Maybe you love those babies of yours and you love being a mom. Maybe you love serving at your kid's school. Maybe you love exercising. Maybe you love um, helping your husband. Maybe you love your career. I don't know what it is that you love. I love my kids. I love being a wife and a mother. I love working out. I love my life. But here is the thing. Those things do not give me life. Life is not found in those things in and of themselves. Does that make sense? And so here's what happens. Jesus comes in, he's in her house, and she goes into the kitchen and she starts cooking up a storm. And it's exciting, isn't it? When you're about to kick a big meal, it's fun. You're thinking, what's the menu going to be? And Oh, I bet he's going to love this. I bet he's tired. I'm going to refill his drink. And you're doing all that. And then after a while, that gives you a little bit of life. After a while, it kind of wanes. Right? Right? That treadmill doesn't do it for me anymore. I don't care how much I can whittle my thighs. It's just not, in the end, going to give me life, right? I don't care how much fun those friends are. I can just go out with them. We can do girls' night only so many times. It's not going to give me life. My children will not give me life. And so what happens after a while, when I'm doing those things over and over and over, and I'm distracted by them, and it's kept me from sitting at the feet of Jesus, my heart and my attitude becomes just like Martha's. How does it start? Lord, do you not care? Boy, has her tune changed toward him. Do you not care? You might say this, Lord, does, do you even see me? Do you even see me? I feel like I'm all alone here. Where has her focus come? It was on Jesus. Come on in. And now where's her focus? Right. So it becomes a self-focused, myopic view that we create of ourselves. And it says, do you not care what? Care about what, Martha? That my sister has left me. So now what's she doing? Blaming. Don't you? These kids are going to make me crazy. My husband, when's the last time he even appreciated all that I've done? Yeah, you're going to think that's a hot meal. I'm going to make sure it's just lukewarm, you know? <laughs> you know how you just get, you just get so tired that we become, we have critical spirits. Women are really good at this, right? That edge starts to come to our spirit and we get real short fused and all of a sudden we can see our spouses and our kids taking a step back because they're like, I don't know why she's so cranky, but she is cranky. And internally, I'm blaming them. I'm like, you, oh, so, right? Right? So that's exactly what happens with Martha. She says, Lord, do you not care? My sister has left me. I'm all alone. How many of us feel that way? Nobody even cares. Nobody even cares. I'm up here, and I'm the one decorating the stinking classroom, and nobody else cares. Right? I'm the one that's all in charge of the fun run, and nobody else cares. You know, I'm the one in charge of caring for my parents who are ailing, and nobody else cares. Whatever it is that's on your plate, that's filling your plate, whether you've placed it there or not, if it's becoming a distraction, you'll know because you'll be getting crankier and crankier and crankier. Your fuse will be shorter and shorter and shorter. And all of a sudden, you start blaming everyone you see, not just Mary, but she's going to blame everybody. Lord, you don't even care. So she's blaming him, blaming the sister, and I'm serving alone. And then what does she do? Tell her to help me. 
What's your prayer? Change him. Change him. Change her. Make them see the light. Lord, just, just, I don't, I don't want to say kill them kids, but, but Lord, do something. Do something. You see, you see how we change and then all of a sudden it's like nobody wants to be around Martha. Martha's done gotten cranky. And so, so you're the same way, right? I'm the same way. We totally, we totally connect to this. And so I wrote some things down that, that occur as a result of these distractions. Anxiety. Anxiety. Because what's happening? Martha, in her mind, who does she believe is in charge of all this? Whose shoulders does this meal rest on? Hers. Why is she cranky? Because it all rests on her. Yeah, if these kids end up getting somehow making it through life without, you know, whatever happening to them, it's all on me. I've got to make sure my kids know about Jesus, show respect to their elders, are sweet in public, clean up their rooms, blah, blah, blah. It's all on me. I've got to make sure my husband is well cared for. It's all on me. I've got to make sure this job position that I have, that I succeed in it and I get the projects done, it's all on me. That produces a lot of anxiety, does it not? How many of us woke up at 3 a.m. this morning anxious about something? I know. Seriously, thank you for your honesty. Yeah, yeah. Resentment is a result of distraction. Resentment, the whole it's not fair mentality will slip into your mind. Comparison, ah. Oh. We're like, well, look at those kids. Those kids are well-behaved. Well, look at her husband. I'm sure he shows up on time to the ball field and coaches or whatever it is, you know? Well, look at her. Look how tight her little rear end is. Well, bless her heart. She is all ready for swimsuit season. Perfectionism comes into play. It's all got to be perfect. And it all rests on me. And her prayers are now change Mary. What did Mary do? Change Mary. So we always, we blame shift. We just get crazy. And what does the Lord say to Martha? How might he answer? If, now, if you're Martha in, the, in this tailspin, what her prayers are, Lord, change Mary. And what, are, what do you think she's hoping the Lord's response is going to be to her? Absolutely. I am so sorry, Martha. You are right. Bless your heart. You sit down and have some bread. And we'll get Mary, you get up. That's what she's hoping. And that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. But here's what happens is that Martha gets stuck, and that's where we get stuck in that cycle of prayer life, that that's all we're saying in our prayers. We're still focused on us, and we can't understand why God's not answering. Because we're not stopping to listen. We don't really want to know what He has to say. We want Him to jump through our hoops. Lord, fix it, change it, deal with it. And that's what she's saying. And the Lord, once again, is surprising. And He says this. Because culturally, these teachers would have cast Mary out of the room. And he says, Lord, the Lord answers Martha and says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He's not shaming her. He's not pointing a finger at her. He's just calling it like it is. This is what I love about the Lord is he speaks into my life. Never does he um, speak in a way that doesn't dignify me, but he's going to speak the truth. He doesn't coddle me and he doesn't shame me. He speaks into my life and he speaks into Martha's and he says, you're troubled and you're anxious about many things. That's right. I am. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. I love that because other translations will say Mary has chosen the important thing. 
And we get that, that it's important, but it takes it to a new level to me when I saw this translation that said, she's chosen what is necessary, what is necessary, and it won't be taken away from her. So as I have studied this passage in all several years down the line, I always think, well, okay, yeah, of course she's supposed to be at Jesus' feet. That's what we're all supposed to do. We're supposed to get up and have a quiet time in the morning, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, I've never gone beyond that and gone, well, tell me why. Why, Lord? I just figured that's the right thing to do. Listen, um, obedience, what Dwight has said in the past that I love is he says, obedience will never sustain your faith. It's wonderment of the Lord that will sustain it. It's love that will sustain it. And so if you're wondering, ask the question. Ask the question. If you're doubting, bring it before Him. If you're upset, bring that before Him. And so for me, as I was preparing to teach this a couple months ago, I said, Lord, why do I want to sit at your feet instead of doing what's easier for me to do and make a meal? Well, not for me to make a meal, but what's easier for me to do, the things on my plate? Can I just get, get those things done? And I'll kind of shoot up some prayers in the car on the way. But, but why do I need to sit at your feet? Now, here's the root of that fear for me personally, and I bet it is for some of you, is that's the intimate place. That's where it's most intimate, where I'm sitting at his feet. How many of us have been around the Lord our whole lives? Especially in our adult world. We go to church. We go to church. We come here every Wednesday. And you're around the Lord. You hear Him. You engage with Him. But let me tell you, we're going to look at this next week. When trials hit your life, when the storms come, as they will, if you are not engaged with Him, you're no different than your neighbor who doesn't even know or love Him. I really mean that. You can know all about him. How many of you are married? You don't have to raise your hands, but if you're married in the room, you know what I mean. There is a difference with walking by and texting about the day's activities with your husband and telling, getting the text of what time he's going to be home for dinner and sitting down and then doing the thing the next day. There's a difference with living like that with him than really connecting with him. Look at him in the eye across from a table and your souls engage again. Do you know what I mean? You do. You do. There are times when I go, oh, okay, there you are. Okay, there I am. Wow, it's been a long time. You, you still are cute to me. Okay, you're still, I, I recognize there's something going on in your soul that I've been so unaware of because I've been doing my thing and you've been doing your thing. The same is true in your relationship with the Lord. You can be around Him a whole lot and not be engaged with Him. Marry what is necessary, what she's chosen is to be engaged with Him. And that's vulnerable and intimate and that's risky and that's scary. That's scary. It's so much easier for me at times just to get in my groove and fist pump Jason on the way out the door and just stay what perceives to be my little I'm in control of my life world. But this morning I sat down in the orange chair and I'm sitting there and it takes me about 10 minutes to even kind of take enough deep breaths to kind of even realize, okay, here we are. And then I'm able to kind of digest and then engage with him again. And there's no formula. For some of you, you're studiers and you're readers. Others of you just need to sit there with your coffee and just let him just start to speak to you. Some of you need to be outside in nature. Some of you need to listen to a, a worship song first to kind of get whatever. The way you engage with the Lord is organic and it's all your own. But what I'm telling you is what's necessary is that you engage with him. Because this... This study could be gone 
after these four weeks. I mean, this could poof and go away. You don't know where you're going to be. Some of you are moving. Some of you, your life will change continually. But what will never change is your heart connection with the Lord. And you need to know He is my anchor. And so wherever He takes me, I'm okay because I'm anchored in Him. And you don't get that kind of security just coming and doing your thing. And, you know, you got to be connected to Him. And Mary's chosen that. I've got five minutes, and so I want to end. As I was praying this, I thought, uh, Lord, remind me why it's better and it's necessary to sit at your feet than to get my checklist done. Remind me. I need to be reminded. And he did. He reminded me of three examples I want to share with you quickly, and then we will close. Um, one was last summer. I was just in a dry, dry, dry spa space last summer, spiritually speaking. I was felt like I hadn't heard from the Lord in a long time. I felt like I hadn't connected with Him in a long time. I was tired. I was getting really cranky about it. I was hard to live with. And I thought, Lord, and I knew it was toward the end of the summer, and I knew I'm about to start teaching again. I, what do I have to say? Lord, I don't even know where you are. I was just in a really dry spot. And so one morning, I just sat on my couch. And as I sat there, I just I thought, Lord, I just need to hear from you. I need to sit at your feet. And I just kind of sat there and I thought, I'm not going to get up until I have experienced something. And the Lord led me to this passage in Isaiah. Everything about my life at that time seemed foggy too. Have you ever felt that way? Where you can't even see what's really going on and what's in front. And scripture is very clear. It says without vision, the people will perish. It's important for us to be able to see up and out. And I'm a visionary. I'm a visionary leader. I'm a visionary person. So that's critical for me. And everything seemed like closing in and foggy. And the Lord led me to this passage. And it says, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them. And I will not forsake them. And I'm telling you, when I read that, it was like my soul was quenched again. And I began to cry. And it was the biggest release. And it was a connection with the Lord that I desperately needed. And it was very simple. And it lasted about 20 minutes. But it fueled me. I still go back to that and think about that. It was one of those special connecting times with the Lord. There will be lots of times I sit at His feet and it's great, but it's nothing spectacular. That's okay. Still do it. But then there's times like that when you go, I would have missed this had I not been disciplined enough just to sit my rear end down. Mary chose, Scripture is very clear, Mary chose what was necessary. She didn't have to do that. The Lord didn't force her, but she chose it. The second thing was uh, just about six weeks ago, I was about to speak at a retreat. And anytime I do that, I get attacked spiritually just the enemy, if you're a believer, you stand opposed. Um, and I, for me, typically, the, the enemy kind of comes to me at my jugular. And what's going to make me most fearful is usually my family, if something were to happen to my family. And so last September, I spoke on a retreat, and I get a call on my daughters at the ER. And it just doesn't surprise, I've just gotten to where it's like I don't even, I'm not surprised by it. It still rattles me. But for some reason, this, this past um, retreat that I did in March, I began to become fearful about my husband, Jason. And I was, I don't know why. I was like, I'm just afraid something's going to happen to him. We're kind of reaching that age of our health is, you know, don't even laugh. But um, <laughs> we are. We are. I know, but it's starting. I'm starting. 
I began to get really fearful about Jason. To the point where I was, I, become, I was becoming gripped by it, that I had not, not experienced that kind of fear in a while. And I was at home, and we were going to bed, and we were both in bed and talking about it. And I was just like, I will kill you if, you, if something happens to you. I'm telling you now. <laughs> but it was just that sense, this irrational, this irrational fear. And even though I could distinguish and tell where it was coming from, it, it wasn't easing up. It was really difficult. Well, he drifts off to sleep. He's like... All right, pet you on the head, and then he's going to sleep. And I'm sitting there, and I just thought, Lord, I'm real, this is really affecting me. And I kid you not, I just thought, Lord, I need to hear from you. And I opened up, and for some reason I was led to Psalm 92. And it says this, it says, But the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. For they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. They flourish in the courts of our God. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit and they will remain vital and green. They will declare the Lord is just. He's my rock and there's no evil in him. I had the best sleep I'd had in days. I did because I thought, and, and it's, 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 you know, the Lord's not promised me that Jason's going to outlive me. He's not That's not what I needed. I needed to know the Lord sees me. He sees me and these little things, they matter to him. And had I just popped an Ambien or a Tylenol PM or whatever it is we do to take the edge off, if I had done that, I would have missed him. I would have missed him. You need a teacher that loves him, and you need to love him. And it's just one of those times where I felt like Mary's like, ah, oh, there's nothing sweeter than sitting at your feet. That's where life comes. That's where life is found. All these other things that I do, hoping that they're going to scratch the itch or satisfy the thing, they're going to end up frustrating me at the, no matter how good they are. But when I'm receiving life from the life giver, then I can pour myself out in these things, but they don't owe me anything. I'm not depending on them to meet a need in me that God never designed for them to meet. I'll close... Um, the other example I had was about um, five, six years, no, it was about six and a half years ago. I was pregnant with Beth, and I was spending time with the Lord, and he led me to Isaiah 43. And it says, Oh, Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. The one who formed you says this. Some of you need to just hear this today. Do not be afraid, for I've ransomed you, ransomed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When, 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 when you go through deep waters, I'm going to be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours. Why? Because you are so precious to me. You are honored and I love you. When the Lord said that, gave that to me, I knew he was trying to tell me something about Beth, who was in my womb at seven months. Turned out she had a hole in her heart. She had to have open heart surgery, the whole thing. Many of you know the story. But I'm telling you, I can't, that, that verse is over this child's life. Because God gave that to me. Was I scared? Yeah. Was I grieving? Yes, but I wasn't hopeless. I wasn't in despair. Listen, I read this quote by Christine Kane, and she says, Faith doesn't prevent life from happening to you. Faith does not prevent life from happening to you. Faith carries you through life no matter what happens to you, in you, or around you. Do you hear that? 
Faith does not prevent life from happening to you. It just carries you through it. It carries you through it. Mary understood that. Mary understood that. So what is Jesus asking from you and from me? The same thing that he was asking of Mary and Martha. He wants your full surrender. He wants your heart. And it requires far more of you to sit at his feet than it does to make him a meal. You can volunteer at the soup kitchen under the bridge every stinking Sunday if you want. And you will still get cranky if that's all you're doing. Because life is found in your personal connection. Now, in service, you will connect with him through those things. But at the end of the day, if you're just doing the thing and you're bypassing him, and you know what I mean, it will, it, he just will never let it satisfy you because he wants your heart, because he loves you that much. So as I was praying this, um, I thought about, Lord, what is it you want to say to us? What are you saying to us? What are you saying to me? And the thing that I kept sensing him saying was, come closer, daughter, come closer. And so over the next three weeks, that's what I want you to hear the Lord say to you. Come closer, come closer. It's the safest place you're going to be. I'm telling you, just come closer to him. So Jesus, in a sense, turned society on its head because he even allowed Mary to sit at his feet and become his disciple. And as a result... She was completely changed, and we'll see that as we walk on with her life a little bit more. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know what we walked in with today. You know what it is that uh, causes us to um, fret like Martha. You know what distracts us. And yet you graciously and lovingly say, oh, come closer. Come closer. Let those things go. Lord, would you give us the courage we need to be more intimate with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. You're dismissed. Next Wednesday, we'll see you back.